As we give our attention then to the Word of God, let me remind you that this is not a mere historic list or account. It is not merely a book about God, but it is the very Word of God, God breathed and therefore profitable for us. So let us give attention with our hearts and our minds to what the Spirit has to say through Luke. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Semiah, the, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Jonas, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Cossum, the son of Elmodem, the son of Ur, the son of Josie, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Manan, Minan, the son of Mattatha, uh, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of uh, Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing and afterward... When they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, 
All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would give us understanding, make us to see your purpose in these things, that we might know our Savior more dearly and closely, that we might uh, love him more. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading all those names made me a little warm. I want to baptize a kid named Arfaxad. That'd be cool. There's so many short shortened forms of that name we could come up with, I bet. That'd be great. Why did the Holy Spirit give us a genealogy here? That's what we all think as we're reading through Luke a little bit, isn't it? We got three really solid, great, exciting accounts of Christ from his conception up through 30 years old And then it feels like you hit a brick wall at the end of chapter 3 that you have to kind of jump over and then you can get back to the good stuff. A little bit, I think our hearts, at least most of us, our hearts at some point feel that way. And yet, as as we know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, which means even... This list is profitable in some way. And in what way? That's the question. Um, And I think there are other questions we might ask about this genealogy. Commentaries certainly do. Why is it different from what Matthew says? Because both seem to be Joseph's lineage, and yet the lists are vastly different. So, even though Christ from David backwards has the same genealogy in Matthew as he does in uh, uh, Luke. Nonetheless, in Matthew, the one traces the genealogy through, um, uh, through uh, Solomon, and this one chases it through David's other son, Nathan, whom we pretty much know nothing about as a person. Uh, so it, why the differences? Um, why, we might ask, does Luke put one 
in the middle of chapter 3. It just feels like it gets in the way, doesn't it? We can understand Matthew because it's like when you pick up, I know you all read biographies a lot, when you pick up a biography and in the front cover you have the family tree, right? You, you open it up, there's the, it's not in your way, it's just in the front cover. It's like having a map in the front cover. It, it's kind of nice and maybe during the biography you'll flip to it and look up some name on the family tree. And we can approach Matthew like that. That makes sense. Get it out of the way. Now let's talk about Jesus. Um, But Luke puts it right here. He's baptized. He comes up out of the water. Uh, The Holy Spirit falls upon him. We have this Trinitarian uh, glorious text. The father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Then we got this genealogy before we get to the wilderness. And it feels like it's in the way. Well, I, I think we really can take two things from Luke's placement and Luke's presentation. Uh, one of the things I hope you take from it, and I think was what Luke had in mind, the spirit through Luke had in mind, in terms of giving us certainty, one of those things is certainty about the, the comfort we have that Christ is of our blood and our flesh, that he is one with us in our humanity. Matthew's genealogy only takes us back to Abraham. Matthew is writing to predominantly Jews, unbelieving Jews. And the most important thing he needs to get through to them before getting to the rest of the gospel is Jesus really is not only of the, of the line of Abraham, but of David's son, Solomon. Therefore, legally, he has a right to the throne and he can be that Messiah that you're waiting for. So Matthew gets that right out of the way, right in the beginning of his gospel. This one is legally an heir to the throne. And it's given through Joseph's genealogy there. And in their tradition, even an adopted son had a right to what the father had a right to. So the fact that Joseph isn't his blood father doesn't matter in the Jewish tradition of that day. All that mattered is that he was legally adopted by Joseph as his firstborn, and Joseph has the right lineage. That's Matthew's focus. But Luke has a different intent. Remember who Luke is writing to? Theophilus. He's writing to a Gentile. He's writing to someone who's not of Jewish blood. He's writing to people like most of you who don't have Jewish blood. And his goal with this genealogy is to say, if Jesus is a son of Adam, he's connected to you. He's of your household, your family. And that should give comfort. Would he care to save me? Luke's response is, he is like you, of your flesh, through Adam. That should be comforting to us. And it helps us understand, I think, one of those tensions about the genealogies. Why are they different? Because this one, this one is not Joseph's genealogy. And I can say that for two reasons. One is that right here in the text, 
we have being as was supposed Joseph's son. Luke makes it clear right in the beginning of this genealogy, he's not actually Joseph's son. And he's been making that point for three chapters. Chapters one and two, especially, we barely see Joseph. It's all Mary's perspective. You know, the Jews cared more about Joseph, so Matthew talks about Joseph's perspective in the Advent account. But Luke, Luke's presenting us with his lineage and his only blood tie is Mary. And he says right here, as was supposed. Why would he give us the whole genealogy here for Gentiles about a supposed father? But the other thing that shows us it's not Joseph's lineage is actually looking at Jewish records of the day. The Jews love their genealogies. And one of the recorded records of that day shows Mary's genealogy and her father's name was Eli or Heli. Joseph's father's name was not. So what we have here in Luke is Mary's lineage, Jesus' actual blood lineage. In our day, we would say the son of Mary and then give the lineage, but they just didn't do that. But he's made it very clear, this is the lineage. And so Luke doesn't think this is some kind of puzzle or trick for us. He's presenting us with Christ's blood heritage. It should be a comfort for us that he is related to us, whatever your tribe, tongue, nation, or people. There's a savior of your blood. Comfort. I think there's another important reason why Luke has this genealogy here, and specifically why he has it here in our text, right at the end of chapter 3 instead of at the beginning of chapter 1. And that is that it, it cues us into something he is showing us. It presents us the context of chapter 4. And for this, let me take you back to Genesis. Because remember when I read Genesis 2 this morning, I gave you a different translation of Genesis 2 verse 4. At least if you were using the New King James. If you were using the New King James, it says the histories of the heavens and the earth. It says that, of course, because that makes a lot more sense to us than saying the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. But it's a bad translation because it's looking at that one text out of context. When you look at all of Genesis, the whole book is structured around one word. The word in the Hebrew is toledot. And it's the word that can be translated history or it can be translated genealogy. And we find again and again that this Toledot presents genealogies. And each time there's a genealogy, it, it brings us to a point in the book where we zoom in a little bit more. It starts off with uh, presenting us with the creation account. And then Genesis 2 verse 4 says, Now the genealogy of heavens and earth. And it tells us about how from the earth God created man. And now we're zoomed in on man, aren't we? Now we're not looking at the whole galaxy, the whole universe anymore. 
We're looking at Adam and Eve in the garden. And their family is now the focus. But in a couple of chapters, we're going to see the genealogy of Cain. And having given us the genealogy of Cain, we don't care about him anymore. We're moving on. And then a little after that, we have the genealogy of Seth. And with that, we start zooming in. Which household of Adam's race? Then we have more history. Then we're going to have the genealogy of Noah. And we're going to zoom in some more. And we're going to zoom in on a specific son through his genealogy and follow that son's children. Then we're going to zoom in on Abraham. Then we're going to zoom in on Ishmael and get rid of him and zoom in on Isaac's genealogy and his history and so forth. That's how the book works. It keeps narrowing using genealogies. Each genealogy either gets rid of a non-covenant uh, reprobate. Let's call it that for you in Sunday school. Covenant reprobate, uh, someone who's out of covenant, out of relationship with God, or it zooms us in on the one with whom he is focusing his covenant, bringing his covenant to the world. And so as we look at Genesis 2, we have this genealogy, and then we get to the history of that family, and immediately what do we find? Adam in the garden with God, giving him conditions, and then he's tempted. Now, if you have that in your mind, and you come to Luke, we have a genealogy that ends with Adam, and immediately after that word Adam, just one sentence later, we have temptation. Luke is bringing us to a new beginning. Genesis began in the garden with Adam and a temptation story. And Luke is saying now that Christ has taken on his messianic role officially at his baptism and his declared to be God's son. Now we're being brought to a new beginning. A new history is about to begin. Here's the genealogy. He is Adam's son, the son of God. And now he's tempted. I think this is really important for us to read Christ's temptation as a comparison and as a new beginning because we need a new beginning. By birth, we have a bad beginning. We need the new beginning. And that's the gospel. And here at the beginning of Christ's ministry, he's presenting us with that new beginning. So let me just compare, really contrast these two texts. Genesis 2 leads into Genesis 3. Genealogy leads, leads into temptation. Let's compare Genesis 3 with Luke 4. For many of you, this is going to be really basic. I realize that. And that's okay. We need the refreshing basic things in our Christian faith. 
So let's just do the simple exercise this morning. Genesis 3, Luke 4. Genesis 3, Adam tempted. Luke 4, Christ tempted. And that's where the comparison stops. After that, it's all contrast, isn't it? Genesis 3, Adam is tempted in the garden paradise. All is right with the world. Almost. The birds are singing. The trees are beautiful. The flowers are growing. The beasts are Adam's companions, but not equals. They aren't dangerous. They serve him. They're cared for by him. It's a safe place. It's a place where Adam and Eve get to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day, every day. And a place where there's a marriage that is currently without sin. What a thought. And that's the context in which Adam is tempted, isn't it? Contrast that with what Luke 4 tells us. Here is Christ tempted in the cursed wilderness. The cursed wilderness. And a wilderness where Mark informs us he is surrounded by the wild beasts. Mark isn't with that brief statement telling us, oh, you know, there's, there's kind animals. There's a, I feel like I saw a picture of this when I was a kid. You know, Jesus in the wilderness, and there was like a, a deer next to him. And, you know, it's like the garden all over again. No. Mark is saying it's not a safe place. It's a place that would drive fear into our hearts, isn't it? Surrounded by lions and tigers and bears or whatever it is in that particular wilderness. It's harsh and unlovely and uncomfortable. It's not a place of protection. It's a place of danger and fear. Genesis 3. Adam's tempted in the garden paradise with provision all around him. Reflect on Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, where God says, God created the garden with every tree, where every tree grew that which is pleasant to sight and good for food. Have you ever you ever noticed that part of Genesis 2? Every tree is pleasant to the eye and good for food. That's the context in which Adam and Eve are tempted and Eve sees that the one tree they're not supposed to eat is pleasant to the eye and good for food. And a little part of our hearts sometimes probably thinks, well, what else was she supposed to do? It's pleasant to the eye, and it's good for food. But that temptation comes 
when surrounded by every other good tree, which is also pleasant to the eye and good for food. Adam's tempted in a garden paradise with provision, all these trees all around him, which God actually commands him, eat all of them, except that one. Eat from all of them, except that one. In fact, one of the trees that would include, be included in eat from all of them is the tree of life. That's the context in which Adam is tempted Then we have Christ tempted, tempted in the cursed wilderness, surrounded by wild beasts and destitute. Destitute, not provided for. Forty days without food. Not just the fear of the wilderness, but also now famine on top of it. I I spent a lot of time thinking about this this last week. Um... Because I feel like often in my life, at this point, I have heard people talk about how, yes, 40 days you can safely fast, as long as you're drinking water. And I even jumped on the old internet, typed in, no food, 40 days, and the top five links that popped up were people proposing Uh, The regular use of fasting, whether in the Christian life or the New Age life or the whatever life, sometimes it's hard to tell which it is, Um, and and all of them saying 40 days is safe for fasting, (coughs) safe for fasting. The the humorous thing I found was the person writing it in two of the articles I found uh, uh, said something like, I personally have, uh, have tested out fast, fasting. I've done 12 days once, and I did seven days twice, or something like that. And I thought, but you just told me it's safe to do 40. You've never done 40. I'm not great with the numbers, but 40 is a lot different than 12, I think. It's almost like by, by doing that, we're making what Christ is doing here less than the gospel is telling us. It's simply looking at it as, could I also fast for 40 days? But that's not what any of the gospel writers are wanting us to draw from this passage. They want us to see the weakness of Christ when he is tempted. One of my favorite things to watch is uh, I try not to bring up television in sermons much, but I love this show, Alone. Alone is a a show where they take uh, 10 survivalists, crazy people, and they drop them in the Arctic Circle, or they drop them uh, in Patagonia or or Mongolia or somewhere, and they each have, you know, an axe, a bow and arrows, and some fishing twine or something like that. And they have to survive all by themselves without seeing other people except occasionally a medical team checking on them uh, in, in a place where there are grizzly bears or mountain lions or whatever. And these are people who love surviving and, and they're out there trying to find food constantly. And of these 10 people, rarely 
do more than do more than four of them hit 40 days. And usually it's because they're starving and they start hallucinating or they start making really stupid decisions. A couple weeks ago we were watching and I watched a woman who is I mean I could never compete with her out in the wilderness. She she took a branch stuck it on her leg, and started sawing. I thought, there's going to be blood. And I was right. It wasn't her leg. It was her finger. But why? Because she hadn't eaten. And it wasn't even for 40 days that she hadn't eaten. But when your body starts eating itself, consuming itself for a period of time, and you're malnourished, your brain doesn't work anymore. And here are all these people They know their brains aren't working well, and you can hear their slurred speech. I say all of this because almost no one on that show goes 40 days. I've never seen anyone go 40 days without food. They might go a week, or they might go two weeks with nothing but a couple of mushrooms and some berries or something, which to me sounds like the worst week of my life could possibly get. But my, my point is, let's not try to make this a wonderful spiritual moment where Christ is so focused and having a great time out there in relationship with God and the surroundings. That's what these articles try to spiritualize this as. But what the Gospels are showing us, and we especially see when we see that this is a contrast to Adam. Adam had fellowship with God in the cool of the day. Adam had no danger. Adam had no fear. Adam had constant provision of all that he could need, and he had companionship in Eve. And Adam fell. He had everything that should cause his brain to function properly. And in contrast, Luke is telling us, here's the son of Adam. Destitute in the cursed wilderness. His brain, biologically, his brain shouldn't be functioning properly at this point. He should be full of fear. Maybe anxiety if he were like you and I. He should be making irrational thoughts. If ever a man should be weak and prone towards temptation, here's Jesus. And instead of him falling into sin, what a thought, what a thought is presented to us here. Satan departed from him. One of the other gospels uses the word fled. Or we can think about the way that this contrast and the and the the conclusion of this whole thing is presented to us about Christ by Paul. Paul, who in Romans and Corinthians refers to Christ as the second Adam. Paul, if he read Luke, got it. He saw the contrast 
And he's giving us the same contrast. Here's the first Adam. Then there's the second or the last Adam, Christ. And he declares that Christ, he didn't fall, but rather became the life-giving spirit. Adam is the death-giving man. Christ is the life-giving spirit. Because, as John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And here we have a major victory in that conflict when Christ is weak beyond imagination. Of course, the conflict isn't over. Christ's temptation wasn't just one day of his life. Matthew tells us that he fasted for 40 days before the temptation. But what Luke is showing us is that Christ was tempted. Notice how it's phrased. Being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And then at the end of 40 days when he's, this is such an understatement. He was hungry. Satan came to him with a food temptation. Christ was tempted every day that he was out there starving and alone. And then he was tempted intensely the 40th day. And when he didn't sin even then, Satan... Satan was out of ideas. When every temptation was ended, that's what Luke's saying, Satan was broken. He left. But notice, he didn't leave forever. He left until an opportune time. Christ still has temptation to come. Now, the opportune time wasn't just Christ at his other weakest moment in a garden one night. How long does it take Satan on those rare moments when you actually reject temptation? How long does it take for Satan to find another opportune time? A couple of minutes? An hour? I I don't think Luke is telling us here that Satan was gone for long. But the Gospels are presenting us with Christ in the wilderness, suffering this temptation as a, as a major pointer at how great our Savior is. And he will be tempted throughout the three years until once again in the garden this time. He is tempted beyond belief and still doesn't fall. But we're shown the end of the story anticipated right here in the wilderness. J.C. Ryle wrote, It is fitting that he who came to destroy the works of the devil should begin his work by a special conflict with Satan. He has had personal experience of conflict and known what it is to be in the fire. 
important for us to know. Because we excuse a lot of our sins, don't we? With you don't know. You don't know. In one sense, that's what we're doing every time we give a context in an apology. I'm sorry that I snapped at you, Sean, but... What what am I saying with the but? Well, anyone would have snapped at you because you have no idea what I was going through. That's what we do. And in the wilderness, Christ proved that we never have that claim. There's no but to our apologies to King Jesus. But if only you knew he has been in the fire beyond what at least I can claim to have ever known. Hebrews 2, Inasmuch then as the children have become partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. What comfort that we have this almighty friend, an older brother who knows our infirmities. What confidence and encouragement we ought to take as we draw this vision, as we gaze into the gospel and see our Savior combat Satan in the wilderness, combat Satan in utter weakness, and see his strength. As the devil flees, what comfort, what confidence. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Indeed, beloved, what a wonderful assurance. He who is the eternal Son of God became the Son of Adam so that we might become the sons and daughters of God. Here's the true Adam, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Luke has brought us back to the beginning, but he's brought us to a new beginning for all those who put their hope in him. Let's pray.